We're in the early part of our latest series called By the Numbers. Today we're going to go to the four corners of the earth, so to speak, to learn about the number four. In the Bible, the number four derives its significance from creation in general and from the creative power, perfection, and authority of our God specifically. The Bible is incredibly interconnected with threads that run through it from beginning to end. In this podcast, I will uncover these threads, help you dig deeper into God's truth, and inspire you to live your life with greater confidence and joy. Welcome to Bible Threads with me, Dr. Bruce Becker. The number four, not surprisingly, shows up in Creation Week in Genesis chapter 1. Now, don't miss the significance of this. It was on the fourth day of Creation Week that God completed the creation of the physical universe. On that day, God brought into existence the sun, the moon, and all the stars. Here's what Genesis 1 says. And God said, Let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. And let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. Maybe just the comment on the phrase, the vault of the sky, in the NIV translation. Now, don't think of the word vault like a bank vault, which is small and enclosed and locked. Instead, think of a huge expanse or extended surface. In the King James Version of the Bible, this word was translated as firmament. The phrase refers to our atmosphere, atmosphere, solar system, our Milky Way galaxy, and the universe beyond. So, what was the purpose of the sun, moon, and stars? God had already created light on day one. So, what was the purpose of these celestial beings? Well, there are actually three purposes, one of which is related to the number four. One purpose was to separate the day from the night. Another was to give light on the earth, the sun by day and the reflected light of the moon by night, along with the stars. The third purpose was to have them serve as signs to mark sacred times, also translated as seasons, as well as to mark days and years. Let's first talk about days and years. On the fourth day of creation, God declared his authoritative rule of the universe, the earth, and all who live in it. With the creation of the sun and its physical relationship to the earth, God established time and a way to measure time. As any grade schooler knows, one rotation of the earth on its axis equals one day. And one revolution of the Earth's orbit around the sun equals one year. The sun, earth, and moon mark days and years. Through these celestial beings, God established time. 
and he continues to govern time as only he can do. But how does the sun mark seasons? Well, it has to do with the Earth's axis, tilt, and its revolution around the sun. Did you know that in our solar system, some planets have axes that are almost completely perpendicular, or, you know, straight up and down? Mercury, Venus, and Jupiter each have a near-perpendicular axis. On the other hand, the planet Uranus has a 98-degree tilt to its axis, so that its north pole is almost on its equator. Think of how unique that is. The Earth's axis is not perpendicular. Its tilt, also called obliquity, is about 23.5 degrees. This means that the sun shines on different latitudes at different angles throughout the year. This causes the four seasons, spring, summer, fall, and winter. Scientists acknowledge that a 23.5 degree tilt is optimal for sustaining life on our planet. Not too hot, not too cold, just right. Isn't our Creator amazing? Now, those who live closer to the equator or closer to the North and South Poles don't experience the change in seasons as much of those of us who live somewhere in between. I live in Wisconsin, and we definitely experience four distinct seasons of the year. Just to let you know, I really enjoy three of the four seasons. The other one I merely tolerate. Can you guess which one? For yourself, just picture Frosty the Snowman. In the NIV translation of the Bible, which I read earlier, it didn't have the word seasons in the translation. Instead, it said sacred times. The two words are related because sacred times, festivals, and feasts occurred during specific seasons of the year. This was especially true for God's Old Testament people. The sacred times and festivals got established aligned with the seasons of spring and fall. But before we talk about this, just one additional thought. As part of the four seasons, there is another aspect of God's creation. We call it seed time and harvest. Where I live, seed time coincides with the season of spring, and the harvest coincides with the season of fall or autumn. On the fourth day of creation, God established time, seasons, and the time frame for planting and harvesting. All are under the authority of the Creator of the universe, and they occur because God says they are to occur. So let's take a brief look at God's Old Testament festivals and feasts to see some connections with the seasons of the calendar year. On Mount Sinai, God established seven festivals. By the way, we'll talk about the number seven in our next episode. Four of these seven festivals occurred in the spring of the year and three in the fall. In the spring of the year, Passover was the first, commemorating the rescue of Israel from Egypt. Passover was immediately followed by a seven-day feast called Unleavened Bread, which reminded God's people that they were called to be a holy people, the Lord's people. The other two feasts were tied to harvest time, the barley harvest and the wheat harvest. The barley harvest feast was called First Fruits, and the final springtime feast was called Pentecost. 
because it occurred 50 days after first fruits. In the fall of the year, there was the Feast of Trumpets, the calling of Israel to ask for the Lord's favor. Next was the Day of Atonement, known as Yom Kippur, signifying God's atonement or cleansing of his people. And the seventh feast was called Tabernacles or Booths. This was a week-long celebration of the fall harvest, specifically the harvest of grapes and olives. So you see, there is a connection between the seasons of the year, especially spring and fall, and the sacred times established by God for his Old Testament people. By the way, for each of these seven Old Testament feasts, there is a New Testament application. But we'll save that for another time. There are a few other interesting aspects of creation worth mentioning that involve the number four. Let's go back in history to the ancient Greeks, 450 years before Jesus was born. The ancient Greeks believed that there were four elements that everything in the world was made up of. Earth, water, air, and fire. A hundred years later, the Greek philosopher Aristotle affirmed this idea of the four elements, and for the next 2,000 years, it was the accepted understanding of the building blocks of God's creation. And those ancient Greeks weren't that far off. Now, around 1800 A.D., there was an English chemist by the name of John Dalton who developed a different theory as to what all matter, that is, all physical things in our universe, was made up of. He theorized that all matter was comprised of tiny bits, invisible tiny bits. And you know what he was talking about. Atoms. The four elements that the Greeks described align pretty well with the four ways or states that atoms exist in God's creation. Every object in God's creation is made up of atoms. How those atoms are arranged within a particular object determines what state it exists in. I'm sure you learned this in school once upon a time. There are four states, solid, liquid, gas, and plasma. For the Greeks, it was earth, water, air, and fire. In a solid, the atoms are packed closely together in a pattern and cannot move. Think of a rock, for example. In a liquid, the atoms are closely packed together but have the ability to move a little bit. Think of water. In a gas, the atoms are farther apart and cannot be contained. Think of oxygen or steam. In plasma, the atoms are similar to gas, except that there is so much more energy. Think of a lightning bolt or the sun itself. Four different states in which atoms exist. Why not three? Why not five? In God's creative design, there are four. The number four shows us God's plan and authority over all creation. Here's another observation about God's creation of planet Earth. There are four basic points of reference on Earth. We know them as north, south, east, and west. These four compass directions have been used since the beginning of time. The earliest reference in the Bible is found in Genesis chapter 13. This is the story of Abraham and his nephew Lot deciding to separate from each other 
because their herds had grown so large that the land couldn't provide enough food for, the, for them all. Abram gave Lot the choice of where to go with his flocks. Lot chose the Jordan River area near Sodom and Gomorrah. As it turned out, that wasn't the wisest choice. Then we read this. After Lot left, the Lord said to Abram, Look around from where you are, to the north and south, to the east and west. All the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. That was a promise that only the Lord could keep, because the north, south, east, and west all belong to him. As we live in God's creation, we see more evidence of the number four built into it. Let's talk a little biology. Take mammals, for example. Mammals include humans and all other animals that are warm-blooded, have a vertebrae, have hair, and feed their young with milk. Now, what is one other characteristic that most, not all mammals, share? Four appendages, either four legs or, in the case of you and me, two legs and two arms. Or think about the number of chambers in the heart of mammals. Guess what? There are four chambers. Or think of insects with wings. Every insect with wings, except for those pesky flies, have four wings. Or think about the teeth in the normal human adult mouth. There are four canine teeth, ones in the front, four incisors, and four wisdom teeth. And how many blood groups are there? Again, four. A, B, O, and AB. Is this just all a coincidence? I don't think so. I believe it's part of God's incredible creative design. Now let's talk a little chemistry. The element carbon is most interesting to me. Carbon is the basis of life on our planet. Without carbon, life would not exist. Carbon is the element in the Earth's organic compounds. Carbon forms stable bonds with many elements, including itself. It does this because it has four outer electrons, also known as valence. These four outer electrons are what make carbon compounds so prevalent. And do you know how many major types of organic compounds exist in nature? Four. Carbohydrates, lipids, also known as fats, proteins, and nucleic acids, which is our DNA. Now, the element silicon is similar. The silicon atom also has these four outer electrons. And the compounds of silicon are many. In fact, they form the majority of the Earth's crust. Coincidence? Not at all. The number four is God's building block of his creation. Or let's talk a little technology and human ingenuity. Have you ever pondered how the number four shows up in everyday life? The number of legs on a chair or table? The number of wheels on a car? or in a lawnmower, or a kid's wagon, or a baby stroller? Or think of the rectangle, which has four angles and four sides. It is the basic design for building, from lumber and bricks used to build walls, houses, and skyscrapers. All of these examples model God's creation. 
The number four is foundational to all of God's creation and demonstrates his power, his perfection, and his authority. But we also see the number four showing up in the Bible in other ways. After God led his people out of slavery in the land of Egypt, they headed to Mount Sinai where God gave the Ten Commandments and many other laws and regulations to Moses up on the mountain. In addition, God gave Moses instructions for the construction of the tabernacle and all of its furnishings. The tabernacle was a portable temple for worshiping the Lord God. In God's blueprints, the number four shows up. You can read about this in detail in Exodus chapters 25 to 28. But here are some examples. The Ark of the Covenant was a rectangular box with four gold rings located at the bottom four corners, two on each side. These rings were to have poles inserted through them so that the priests had a way to carry the ark without touching it. The same was true with a rectangular table on which would be placed bowls, pitchers, and plates used in the sacrifices. On the lampstand, there were four cups shaped like almond flowers with buds and blossoms. The tabernacle itself was rectangular in shape with two rooms, one a rectangle and the other a square. Between the two rooms, a curtain was hung on four posts anchored to four silver bases. Now, the altar used to uh, do burnt offerings was square and also had four rings attached to it for transport purposes. In addition, there were four horns attached to each of the four top corners. Finally, when it came to the priest's garments, God instructed Moses to make a breastpiece that was square, and on it were attached four rows of precious stones, twelve in all. For all of the priest's garments, Moses was to use four different colors of threads or yarn, gold, blue, purple, and scarlet. It's interesting that the tabernacle had many examples of the number four, but it's not surprising. The tabernacle was God's design. The remaining examples of the number four being used in a significant way are all contained in visions that God permitted the prophets Ezekiel, Daniel, and Zechariah to experience. And in the New Testament, the number four shows up in the visions that God permitted the Apostle John to experience. The book of Ezekiel starts out immediately with a vision. Ezekiel wrote, I looked, and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. The center of the fire looked like glowing metal, and in the fire was what looked like four living creatures. In appearance, their form was human, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Okay, I'll, I'll skip ahead here a few verses. Their faces looked like this. Each of the four had the face of a human being, and on the right side each had the face of a lion, and on the left the face of an ox. Each also had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. They had two wings spreading out upward, each wing touching that of the creature on either side, and each had two other wings covering its body. Each one went straight ahead. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go, without turning as they went. The appearance of the living creatures was like burning coals of fire or like torches. 
fire moved back and forth among the creatures. It was bright, and lightning flashed out of it. The creatures sped back and forth like flashes of lightning. Now, later in chapter 10, we learn that these four living creatures were cherubim, a class of angels. The first time we hear about cherubim is when Adam and Eve got escorted out of the Garden of Eden and cherubim guarded the entrance. Now, on the cover of the Ark of the Covenant, which we talked about earlier, God instructed Moses to put two golden representations of cherubim. Representations of cherubim were also embroidered into that inner curtain in the tabernacle. Cherubim, like all angels, do the will of the Lord. The four-faced, four creatures that Ezekiel saw reminds us that God rules over all four corners of the world. The four wings on the cherubim symbolize the speed at which the angels carry out the Lord's authoritative will. In chapter 10, we also read about the four whirling wheels that accompanied the four cherubim. Check it out in your Bible, or listen to my podcast on angels where I explain these whirling wheels. Now let's go to the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 2, Babylon's king Nebuchadnezzar had a dream about a huge statue with the head made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, with legs of iron and feet of clay and iron. This was a dream that symbolized four world powers. Then in chapter 7, Daniel was given a kind of parallel vision of four great beasts, a lion, a bear, a leopard, and a terrifying beast with no name, but it had ten horns. We learn in the following verses that these four beasts were four world powers. The first was the Babylonian Empire in which Daniel lived. The second would be the Persian Empire. The third would be the Greek Empire. And the fourth would be the powerful Roman Empire. All of these world powers would rise to power and then fall from power. At the end of this vision, Daniel learns of another king and another kingdom. And this is what he learned. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him. The vision looked forward to the kingdom of Jesus, the Son of God, which far surpasses even the most powerful of earthly kingdoms in both impact and longevity. These visions reinforce the truth that God has power and authority over all of his creation. The prophet Zechariah experienced two similar visions. In one vision, he saw four horns that sought to destroy God's people. These four horns are similar to the four world powers described in Daniel chapters 2 and 7. In the Bible, horns are symbols of power and authority. Now, in the second vision, Zechariah saw four craftsmen or artisans, like blacksmiths. These four craftsmen appear to hammer the horns into submission, like a blacksmith hammers metal into the shape he wants. Again, this is a picture of the Lord God having all things in creation under his authority, power, and control. And this authority will be fully revealed when Christ returns on the last day. 
which takes us to the vision John saw recorded in the book of Revelation. More than 20 times the number four shows up. In chapter four, we learn about the four living creatures, which represent the created world. In chapter six, we read about the four horsemen who ride on the earth. These horsemen are not actual individuals, but influences in the world. For example, the horseman on the white horse represents the power of the word of God to bring hope to a broken world. The horseman on the red horse represents war. The horseman on the black horse represents hopelessness, famine, and disaster. And the rider of the sickly pale green horse represents death. All four horses and horsemen represent what we experience in our created world. Then in both chapter 7 and 11 of Revelation, we read a series of four descriptions of those who live on the earth, described as nation, tribe, people, and language. Four words. In the same chapter, reference is made to the four corners of the earth and to the four winds of the earth. Finally, toward the end of Revelation, we learn about the new heaven and new earth. The description includes a four-sided holy city with four sets of gates. Interesting. The number four shows up often in the Bible. And when you run across the number four in your Bible reading and study, think of creation, power, perfection, and authority, all belonging to God. God owns the number four. In our next episode, we'll explore the number seven. Until then, if you have any thoughts or questions about this podcast, please email me at bruce at timeofgrace.org. I'd love to hear from you. And if you are looking for additional Bible content to watch, read, or listen to, go to timeofgrace.org. And I want to tell you again about a devotion book that we're offering this month. It's a 365-day devotional for 2022, entitled Life to the Full. And the reason we're offering it in November is because it would make a great Christmas gift for a family member or a friend. Just go to timeofgrace.org to get your copies. Thanks for listening, and God bless.